As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Want an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news and trends in the NBA? Listen to the NBA Daily Ding podcast Monday through Friday. Wake up and turn up the NBA Daily Ding to stay informed on all things NBA here at The Athletic and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show, Monday through Friday, on the Athletic Podcast Network. Tamper with you. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Sam Panic. Aha! To be able to bring people together. Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is not talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward to even talk about. I can't even mention teams anymore. Actually, what I like to play with Kevin Durant. Trial you want with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. Is that right, Gasson? I have tampered with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast coming at you from the road, which is not something we've said much in the last year and a half. I'm Sam Amick, National NBA writer at The Athletic here as always with the same cast of characters and usually Anthony Slater is Mr. West Coast like myself. Fred Coast, uh, Fred Coast, I changed your name, Fred. Fred Coast, <laughs> Fred Katz, still our East Coast guy, but Slater, you and I moved a little bit closer to Fred. We are coming at you, and, and uh, on the Zoom, it, it's funny because uh, we have From the same- the surface of the sun. The surface the of the Phoenix Suns. Uh, it has dipped today in downtown Phoenix from 115 to 106. When I shared this development with my oldest son, and I said it was only 106, of course, he said you can never attach only to one anything, but I disagree. I think that nine degree- decline is is significant. We're going to have an okay day, but we're out here covering Suns Clippers. We're going to talk about the West Finals. We're going to talk about the way we got here. And I know it's a few days old at this point, maybe a little bit of jazz talk and the way the Clippers knocked them into oblivion and a tough offseason. But Sixers, Hawks, you know, game seven, guys, uh, incredible stuff. And, and now, you know, of course, we have Atlanta, Milwaukee on the East Coast side. Slater, let's start where we are. Let's start in the moment. Uh, Suns Clippers is a series that we did not expect to see coming into this year. The Clippers part, sure, fine. But the Clippers part, you know, now, of course, without Kawhi Leonard, that part is unfortunate. But man, Phoenix coming out and punching them in the mouth right away and doing it without Chris Paul and doing it with depth and versatility and bigs and wings and good coaching and a pretty incredible environment is as weird and somewhat uncomfortable as it was to be around 18,000 people. Uh, it was a lot of fun as far as the, the fan scene. Uh, what'd you take away from that opener? Well, it starts with Devin Booker, uh, Fred Katz's number two player on the <laughs> <Phoenix> Suns. <laughs> yes. Going for 40, 13 and 11 in his, uh, you know, conference finals debut. It, it, How did he do no, that without Chris Paul though? Chris is the MVP, right? Yeah. Without Chris Paul's leadership out there. How was he possibly <laughs> able to maneuver? Um, he just he's he's rising 
up the NBA ladder in these playoffs. Uh, I think we saw it in that first round against the Lakers. Uh, he closed them out with 47. Uh, he, he didn't have to do as much against Denver. Chris Paul was good in that Denver series, but also like Denver was just so depleted. Um, Booker kind of casually was scoring like, you know, 30, 34 in that series. And, and, and maybe it took a, we took a two week break from realizing that this guy is emerging, in my opinion, to like top 10 type, you know, low on the 10. Uh, but right, top right around 10, man. Though. All right. Is he, I mean, you, you were at the game yesterday, Sam. I mean, he's if he's three level putting up, elite. Scorer. Yes. No, he is elite. And, and, and even, I mean, we joke, listen, Chris Paul's leadership has been great, but Devin Booker is a 24 year old to have that kind of composure and leadership against a Clippers team that, that certainly had playoff experience in spades over the Suns uh, was incredible. And so, yeah, I mean, if he's dropping 40 point triple doubles and doing it on this kind of a stage, he is, he is pushing into that conversation for sure. Well, well, to me, you know, it was the most impressive part of that performance. And I say this only like 49% in jest. He, he almost did the work of both Devin Booker and Chris Paul. I mean, how, how, uh, the way he paced the game, because he basically took over all the Chris Paul duties. Maybe right? Chris I mean, Paul has been bit. doing the work of Devin Booker the whole time. <laughs> Maybe. He took he took 19 shots between outside the restricted area and inside the three-point line. 19. Right. Uh, and just dominated from just that, that mid-range area. And the way he was weaving, the way he was pacing, I thought his reads in that game were unbelievable. I mean, there were times where he's, he's hitting, you know, Aiton on, on cuts and bounce passes and, and his reads went to, to go up and take those kind of mid-range shots. I mean, he was so good from that area of the floor, both as a shooter and a distributor. Oh. And he just, he just totally and completely dominated from that area of the floor. It was it was incredible. I, he was he was amazing. I think he was game. six of eight between fifteen and nineteen feet. Um, and you know, I went back and you know, like Donovan Mitchell, for example, who who the Clippers played in the last round, made one shot in that little pocket of the floor the entire series. Um, he's like this is he's not Kevin Durant. I'm not saying that at all, but like I, I've spent years covering Kevin Durant in the playoffs, and and Kevin Durant. As we saw in these playoffs, too, he rises to like an, another level in the playoffs because defenses do get better against most guys. Um, but when you can score in such a variety of ways, and that's how I would describe Devin Booker's offensive game is a variety. It's not just like at the rim, mid range three. It's like different styles of mid range. It's it's fading from the baseline. It's did you see that Denver game where he had a lefty floater and then he came down and made a righty floater when they kind of like readjusted to it. Um he's just so versatile in the way he can score. And now as we're seeing when needed in these playoffs, including in the Lakers series, he had some big assist nights because Paul couldn't move his shoulder basically. And then yesterday, 11 assists to turnovers and defensively, he's big enough. Like he's not one of those guards who then gets like targeted a ton on the other end. Like he had some really nice defensive moments in game one. He's doing some, uh, you know, like Paul George had a nice night, but like he's, he's capable out there. Uh, he's a complete player. And then. He is playing on a team right now that is very complete, which you saw yesterday. Campaign steps in, fills in capably. DeAndre Ayton, uh, you know, I mean, he did what Rudy Gobert couldn't uh, necessarily, and we can get to Gobert, but he, he to me, kind of punished uh, the Clippers' small stuff enough that they played 31 minutes of Zubach and Cousins, which by the end was not going well for the Clippers. And then Mikel Bridges is hitting big shots. And um, I think that's Phoenix the difference like, too, right? Slater yeah. is the fact that, that you know, that Ayton forced him. You know, uh, Ty Luda, you know, to do what um, hadn't happened in the prior series. I mean, the fact that eight was good enough that they, they felt compelled to put those bigs out there and in the end paid that price. I think Phoenix looks like the most complete team in, in the playoffs right now. I don't know where you guys are. I, I think I agree with that. I wonder if Ty Lue goes to a goes to a more. I mean, look, we know Ty Lue is going to completely change the makeup of how he rotates his guys throughout the course of a series. We've seen that with every single series he's coached. And I wonder how much Lou is going to progress towards small lineups after that game. Aiton was really good. And part of the reason that he he killed wasn't just because of size. I mean, he was really good in the in kind of the, the high post too. He was he was finding shooters and and making reads off pick and rolls and all that and and was was really, really good in that aspect of the game too. Uh but I mean, the Clippers were scoring against Aiton. Like when Aiton was on the floor, they scored 135 points per 100 possessions. It's not exactly like 
Aiton's out there and he's stopping them. And I'm not saying they're playing Aiton off the floor. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is I wonder how much uh, moving forward the Clippers are going to go with those small lineups and see if they can really get those three-point shots from the corner and from the wings and all those stand-up threes that they're able to create because they still took 47 threes. And and the offense really, really did really did hum. Yeah, Monty Williams did say that he he thought they gave it way too many corner threes. They were helping off too much. Aiton, I know, was a problem in a couple of them. He was like leaving the strong side corner. So yeah, there's there's still exploitable points within that. But I I just I think Aiton is better built to you know exploit uh, the Clippers on one end than go than Gobert was, and then on the other, I think Phoenix's surrounding defenders and defensive schemes are just. They'll, they'll help cover up even more. Even if Aiton's, you know, I still don't trust him like on a switch necessarily guarding Paul George. I just think Phoenix can stop them enough. Um, we'll see. I mean, you mentioned the adjustments, but I just think without Kawhi, uh, the Clippers don't have that like turbo small ball that I think they would need to beat the Clippers. They're like Terrence Mann is out there. Like, you know, I know he had the 30 point, nine point night, but he's kind of quiet in game one. I don't necessarily see that happen again. And then, um, Marcus Morris looks slow to me. I mean, his, I his know. you know, his playoff career high before the other night was 13. So I, I do wonder, I mean, you know, he went crazy that night and, and you, you kind of alluded to Gobert. I mean, listen, I, Quinn Snyder was on my short list for coach of the year, but I mean, that was a rough night at the office where man was obviously the benefactor of, of kind of YMCA style, wide open threes all night long, all second half long. And I don't know if, if he's going to be giving you uh, even half that offense on, on the regular. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, there's been so much concentration put on Gobert in that game six, and 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 rightfully so. I agree with everything everybody said. The Clippers also played perfect offense. Like, give them some credit too. But they give, were, I mean, isn't it Fred? Just, like, you give them the cheat code, and 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 they used it. I, I mean, I hear you. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's both sides. Yeah, it's both sides. No question. But the Clippers played like the Clippers saw that that way that they could take advantage of Gobert and that Gobert was guarding man and just, you know, by by guarding man, he wasn't guarding man and he's in the middle and the Clippers were just spraying the ball around the perimeter and finding an open catch and shoot three, basically every possession, right? Right. But they were not just hitting 75% of their jump shots during that half of basketball. They were finding every single one. I mean, their passing was absolutely, they had a 180 offensive rating in the second half of that game. Right. Like they played perfect perfect offense on top of the fact that Utah just did not adjust and you know the Clippers told it once the Clippers neutralized uh Gobert so right. so I think you know it's a Gobert thing but it's also like the Clippers played perfect Reggie Jackson had 22 points and 10 assists in one half of basketball right. like the Clippers played perfect basketball during that second half too it was both right things. right right and I know we're not gonna hit the rewind button too much and, and we'll see where the jazz offseason goes, I, I do have to say, you know, as I'm watching that unfold, like everybody else, it was so uncomfortable. I, I almost tweeted something like, this is painful for Rudy and literally didn't because I like Rudy and I, you know, he's been good to the media and I just felt like, now nah, he doesn't need more of that negativity, but it was painful to watch. And not only that, you talk about, you know, welcome to kind of NBA politics one-on-one. You're watching that game going, Quinn's a very smart coach. And it felt like, from a political standpoint, when you have somebody like Rudy Gobert, who, you know, our John Hollinger, who's obviously incredibly bright on the game, you know, has talked about Rudy as a top five MVP candidate, like politically, Quinn clearly felt like he couldn't sit Rudy. That in that kind of a game, that's the kind of night that would leave a mark on Rudy going forward in terms of the relationship. So you make that choice to just keep rolling that ball out there and, and they obviously paid the price. Who was a more disappointing second round team, them or uh, the Sixers, who we can get into? I'm going to say the Sixers, although there's some parallels there. I mean, Embiid not being fully healthy, which I don't know if you guys knew that. It's not like he didn't, you know, tweet it in all caps after the loss. And I didn't love Did he possibly have something with his knee going on? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I love you, Sixer fan. That's why I played hurt because I'm a warrior. And, you know, make sure don't forget that part when you talk about how we crashed and burned. So, but so Joel and Donovan Mitchell, the parallel there, of course, is just not fully healthy. I hated seeing Donovan continue to struggle with that ankle that, that kind of dogged him for the whole back end of the season. But the Ben Simmons 
you know, finish and in, in all its glory was a sight to behold and, and didn't have any of the injury components. It had, um, you know, an equally painful kind of Rudy Gobert type finish. So I think it's close, but Philly as a team that um, obviously chose to not, well, not, not completely chose, but the James Harden trade looked like it was going to happen midseason. And I think it's kind of comical now that Daryl Morey went to such great lengths to make sure that people thought that he didn't offer Ben Simmons in the Harden trade. And, and I get it because at that time, ownership in particular was looking at Ben like a major part of the program and didn't want to change the optics around him. But, you know, now that becomes a little bit of a, not a little bit, a big what if, you know, what if they found a way to get that Harden trade over the finish line? Um, so I think Philly, because I think Utah's got a few more reasons for what happened, but it's close. Sam, what's your what's your analysis of that uh, Simmons negotiation for Harden? Do you do you believe that he was actually offered? Do you, I mean there was talk at the time about Tyrese Maxey being something that kind of a something someone who the deal potentially hinged on? What what is your analysis of that? Looking back on it, yeah, I, I for sure believe that Simmons was offered, um, and I just think that that if for one, the Sixers have a tricky front office dynamic where, uh, you know, Daryl comes in obviously and Elton Brand's still there. Um, and I think Daryl was finding his way. And well, I say finding his way, Daryl only knows one way to operate, which is if, if I was hired to, to do this gig, I'm going to be the lead negotiator and I'm going to work the phones every day and make more calls than anybody. So yes, I think Ben was offered, um, my memory's a little fuzzy on the details from there. You know, I seem to remember a Matisse Thibault, hang up type thing where they were, you know, not wanting to give up every young piece. Um, but on the Philly side, when they unpacked everything that happened, they did not in the end believe that they were nearly as close to the deal as had been indicated during the negotiations. They essentially felt like uh, the Rockets and Rafael Stone had, I mean, this happens a lot in different negotiations. You need teams to play off one another and you need leverage. And, you know, the reporting after the fact that I do think had some merit to it was that Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta was was in no mood to be given James Harden to Daryl Morey with, you know, the way that they came to an end. And that would make some sense. It might not have been the smartest move because, you know, maybe that would have been a better deal for Houston. But I think that's how it went down. Fred, you watched uh, Ben Simmons in the first round, uh, and he was a bit better in that Wizards series. But, you know, I'm just looking game log right now. I mean, the last three games, four shots, six shots, four shots total. He had a game in that series with three shots. He shot 32% from the free throw line on a, on a pretty decent amount of attempts in, in the, uh, the playoffs. Uh, you know, it's his, his offensive game is just not advanced. I mean, this isn't some, you know, new take I'm having, but they, you know, we talk about the jazz and Sixers heading into the summer. Who's the bigger disappointment? I don't think any of us necessarily expect some like big Utah shakeup. Maybe they need to kind of, you know, tinker with the supporting cast in Philadelphia. You know, you, it's not hard to read that there's an expectation that, that Ben Simmons might be traded this summer. Um, Fred, what did you think about when you saw it kind of were watching him in that wizard series and, and where this might be going with him? Yeah. I mean, the reason that I, I think I'd answer that question as the Sixers being more disappointing is because with Simmons, it just it felt like a snowball situation. I mean, he was he was good during that first round series against a defense who is not exactly known for getting a ton of stops. It was Wizards a regular won. season defense, essentially. It was a regular season defense. But you know what? It's not like Atlanta is like filled with all of these stoppers, right? And so to me, when you see what happened with Gobert, that was that was an adjustment issue, and that was a skill set issue, and that was a personnel issue, right? And with Simmons, it feels like a Simmons issue, you know? Uh, with the way that his struggles just kind of snowballed. And this is a really, really, really extreme way to look at it. And I'm not saying Simmons is going to be out of the league in four years, but I watched Simmons play last night. And all I'm thinking about, he took one shot in combined in six straight fourth quarters games, two through six or games, two through seven, that's six games. He played 44 fourth quarter minutes. He took one shot. And all I'm thinking is, I feel like I'm watching superstar Andres Biedrens 
Like that's that's what this feels like. You remember that? Like he he was like a good double double guy for Golden State like ten years ago, and he starts having these. He had these free throw struggles. He starts becoming extremely afraid of going to the line, and. I checked it this morning. He, he made 20 free throws in his last 198 NBA games as a center. Uh, and he's out of the league and, and it just starts to affect every other area of his game. And he's not the only guy who we've seen that happen with, but he's just kind of the go-to guy that comes to my mind in that because he's the most extreme example I can think of of seeing that in the last 10, 15 years watching the NBA. And watching Simmons in that series, it just felt like the free throw stuff and the lack of offense was was bleeding into every other part of his game. Uh, and it was it was really difficult to watch because he's such a tremendous talent and he's such a high IQ player. And it just feels like one of those situations where personality was overcoming IQ. And, and it was, it was <laughs> that, that to me was extremely difficult to watch him deciding not to go up for that dunk that everybody lost their mind about when he was wide open and instead passing it up to a guarded defender because he just didn't feel comfortable going up to shoot. And, uh, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but but it it just it was not easy to watch the conclusion of that series with him. Yeah, and that now we have to you know f- think about you know w- what they can get this summer, right? I mean, um, it, I I want to kick it to Sam, but I think I'll just let we'll, we'll pause. <laughs> I can the come back. Sorry, okay, tampering ready? listeners. Andrew, you're gonna have to edit this one. Three, two, one. Uh, you know and. Fred, now we have to think about the summer uh, and, and you know, where they might uh, go to try to fix this Simmons issue or get some type of package with them. Sam, what is kind of maybe your intel or your read on on Philly and uh, their willingness or not even just the willingness, the eagerness maybe to to move on from Simmons this summer? We'll see. I don't have an early read on it just yet. I mean, listen, the, the obvious is that they were open to that prospect back at the trade deadline. And, and so now we're going to be you know, infinitely more open to that idea. You, you also now, I don't have a great sense for their locker room dynamics, but in, you know, the stuff we do know is that Joel and Ben have struggled in the past, seemed like they got it to a better place the last couple of years. But, you know, I, that game last night, some fans had kind of highlighted some of the body language coming from Joel when Ben's passing up that dunk. And it just seems like they've, they've tried to share the same oxygen for a long time. And, Joel, you know, you know, with his other than his health problems, is is still that guy that people say it's it's on the organization to get the right pieces around him. It's not on him. The guy's incredible. So with that in mind, who is that? Right, like the first name that was trending on Twitter this morning when I woke up was C.J. McCollum. So you know that that to me is is an obvious one to look at, but it's also you know somebody put it well. They were like so. The Sixers are going to, you know, get rid of a guy because he couldn't get him out of the second round to go get somebody who can't get out of the first round. And, you know, very different players, obviously, just polar opposite in terms of skill sets. But um, I, I don't know what other names come to mind for you guys, but it's that age old question of it's easy for us to say time to move on from Ben Simmons. But for who? Because James Harden's not on the block anymore. And, you know, th- those kinds of uh, talents are tough to come by. Yeah, I mean, on top of that. I, I understand the inclination of it's time to move on from Ben Simmons, but at the same time, if you if you offload Ben Simmons now, I feel like sometimes when people say it's time to uh, to to trade so and so, and they say that as if the other twenty nine teams are unaware of what we just watched as right. well. Like if you trade him now, you're trading him at his lowest value point. Right. Everybody else just had the same reaction as all of us did watching that series. You know, if you trade him now, you're trading him at his lowest value point. And if, if you can get a good deal, there are still people in the league. It's not like everybody in the league is out on Simmons. I mean, there are still people in the league who think that Simmons is really, really good and he is really good. Uh, but, but you're choosing a low point of his value to trade him. Uh, so, so, you know, I mean, that's something that has to come into consideration too. No, for sure. Yeah. And that's where I don't envy Daryl. I don't envy Doc Rivers because if you decide to wait for, you know, next season to start and for his value to get rebuilt over the course of a couple months where maybe he plays okay or plays well, then, you know, that works on the trade front and that works on the front office front. It does not work in the locker room. It doesn't work, 
with the fan base where we all know that pro sports in general is, is kind of, it's all about hope and and optimism. And so Sixers fans are going to go into next season, incredibly cynical about whether it's even worth it to track this team that kind of showed itself in this form in the playoffs. And, you know, and Doc Rivers looking at it going, we, you know, we're back on the Titanic with the same pieces. So I don't know what they do, but you're right, Fred. It's, it's not, the same negotiation at all that it was, you know, four or five months ago. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. How about the Atlanta side of this? Bucks, Hawks in the East Finals, <laughs> uh, Suns, Clippers in the West Finals. What? Which one? If I took your brains back to the beginning of the season and I told you those were the conference finals matchups, which one would you be like more surprised by? Oh, like, the Hawks. Yeah, you said Atlanta. Just, who are we comparing Atlanta and who? Well, just the the matchups that the East was going to be Bucks, Hawks, yeah. and the West was going to be Suns, Clippers. I, it has to be the East because. I mean, I think we would all be surprised Phoenix rose this quickly, but Atlanta, yeah. I mean, like of those four. First of all, man, you know, we need to figure out what what you know, online genius uh, came up with that video that made my morning of the Kevin Herter Rick Astley mixtape. Did you guys see this? this? Yes, yes, that was amazing. Uh, I know I'm I'm putting myself in that you know guy who grew up in the '80s. Box, you know, the never gonna give you up song blaring in the background. I believe Andrew has a note for you, Sam. Uh oh, Andrew got a note. Let me see what what Jerome works for the athletic. Who does? Oh, that's video. Jerome. Okay, Andrew, you might need to hop on the Andrew. For one we have the story that was an athletic say, production. That would be the Athletics' own Jerome Chang. He works with us on video stuff for the podcast side and also creates just. Incredible stuff, obviously. So uh, you can follow him at Black Dragon Roll on Twitter. Jerome is the man and is really going to help us uh, take the athletic podcast stuff to a new level. So uh, big, big shouts to Jerome. All right. So Genius Jerome does, and, and Google it, look at it on our, on our, on our socials. Um, yeah, Rick Astley singing Never Going to Give You Up. It's not even a stretch. Rick Astley, if anybody doesn't know, just a, a kind of a one-hit wonder singer from back in the day, looks just like Kevin Herter. And it's spliced up with Kevin destroying the Sixers' soul and some Trey Young clips in there, and it was wonderful. I, I loved it. And uh, and yes, that to your question, Slater, we did not anticipate you know, just having the Kevin Herter hype train here as we enter the conference finals. Herder was, uh, yeah, part of that same Trey Young draft. And um, that's, you know, kind of an emerging core. We had a conversation. I believe it was the podcast that Sam didn't do, um, but it was like, which future do you believe in more, the Hawks or the Grizzlies? And we all were like, you know, they're kind of on the same path, but Atlanta, because they're in the East and and it's easier to climb. Now, I mean, they've elevated themselves beyond that i mean like that was not an easy team they just beat i understand ben simmons has his uh flaws and and philly has some uh, soul searching this summer but like that was a that is an impressive series win that's an they won game five and game seven in philadelphia uh, slater why didn't says, the sixers defense work because in game seven you and i are sitting down in the hotel lobby watching that unfold you're you know you're highlighting the length on the floor late in that game yeah. and it's like they obviously lost Danny Green, but you know you still look at that group defensively, and it's like, why can't they slow down the Hawks? I understand Trey is as slippery as anybody in the game, and they got shooters all over the floor, but it's still surprising with that length, that athleticism, and and you know, and Doc Rivers has got some defensive chops as a coach. Why didn't it work? I just didn't think they were like flying around with that like desperation that you're supposed to have in that type of moment because if they are. Um that 
they should have uh, like they, they they profile as an absolutely elite playoff defense and they they really weren't and you know there was also just mistake moments you mentioned maybe the biggest play of the entire game is Matisse Thibel tr- trying so hard to get a block that he just hammers Herder in the head and gives him three <laughs> right. free throws uh in the final minute but um you know I do think there was just like Philadelphia problems within that but also I mean you mentioned like Trey Young we mentioned three level scores or you know variety type scores like Devin Booker I mean Trey Young can score in so many ways the floater you know how many times did he just go to that that's how do you beat length in the NBA a lot of times particularly as a small guard you get in that floater range and you just kind of plop it over the top um they're just um they're they're just really impressive in that series, and they're you know they're going to be underdogs against Milwaukee. Fred, our East Coast uh, expert, though, like how mu- how much of a chance do you give them against the Bucks? I think it's really tough for them against the Bucks. But but by the way, it is remarkable that they go on the road and Trey shoots five for twenty three in a game seven, right. and they win that game. Like that is the incredible part of it all. I think the Bucks are really hard for them because I don't know how the heck they're going to guard Giannis. Like I, I, I was just talking to our Bucks writer Eric Name about this 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 morning, and and we kind of land on the conclusion that it's probably going to have to be Capella, but that's not necessarily an ideal. And Capella has guarded Giannis before, but but that's not like an ideal defensive matchup. I mean, there's not Gallinari will take all the charges. He's just going to be sitting there trying to (laughs) every every possession, just every time Giannis touches. It's going to be really tough to see how they go about stopping Giannis, because if you if you put you know, there's nobody who can necessarily just kind of square up against him and and kind of displace him from going where he wants to go other than Capella. Uh, and and I don't think that necessarily puts them in a great sense because if you put Collins on, on Brooke Lopez, now all of a sudden, you know, Brooke has shown a propensity the last two, two and a half months to really beasting down low in the post if he's got a mismatch. And I could see Milwaukee trying to take advantage of that. And I could see Brooke having success in doing that. I, I don't know how they're necessarily going to maneuver their defenders. Nate McMillan, by the way, has done an unfreaking believable job. Like I, I, the list, I don't know who else would be on it, but the list of best interim coaching jobs in NBA history has got to be ridiculously short and Nate McMillan's on it. I don't know how many other people are on that list with him, but it's, it's incredible. Um, he's, he's done an okay job against Giannis in the past with his Pacers teams, but I just don't know what their answer to him is in this series. And I could see him. He shot 65, 66%. I forget the exact number against Atlanta during the regular season. And I could see him just going off in this series because I don't know what the defensive response is. To and him. W- along those lines, Fred, what do you think about, to me, Trey Young, Drew Holiday is tough for, for Trey. And we shouldn't continue. I should not doubt Trey at all after what he's done in these playoffs. But, you know, I think if you're on the Milwaukee side, you're feeling pretty good about that trade now that you have, I mean, Eric Bledsoe's a dog defensively and we know that, um, but the the size was always an issue. And to me, Holiday is is about as good an option as you could have to, to throw on Trey Young. Yeah. I mean, I think if Trey gets going, what, what he has going for him is that the Bucks are very stubborn about playing their drop coverages, and Trey has maybe the best floater of any guard in the right. NBA. So, so if Trey gets going, it's because he's able to get into the middle because Capella's setting really good screens with freezing for a little bit, and maybe he uses that like free throw line jumper to drop six, eight free throws, and then maybe he hits three, four, five floaters, and all of a sudden now he's going and he's got his rhythm and he's able to create corner threes from there and that kind of stuff. And I think if Trey gets going, and I'm sure it'll happen in some game in the series, if not multiple, my guess is that that's the most obvious way it'll happen. But yeah, I mean, look, how many better fit players are there in the league to guard Trey Young? Right. Than Drew Holiday. It's funny, Slater. Yesterday we watched James Jones, uh, rightfully so, accept the NBA's Executive of the Year award at the game. Did it, did, did anybody know that was coming? That was no. kind of weird. No, it wasn't. They just we were kind of getting ready for tip off, and suddenly Robert Sarver's at midcourt, and he's like, um, "Congratulations to James Jones." I thought he was just like kind of shouting out James Jones. Right, They're about right, to play right. the conference finals. He's like the Executive of the Year. I was like, 
was that an opinion or right. did you just win the award? I don't. <laughs> and it, apparently it was the award. It was the presentation of the award that nobody, and I, we're sitting on the media row with like, you know, national reporters who, you know, Sam's to my right, Mark Spears to my left, Chris Haynes. And we're all sitting there like, wait, did he win the award? Like that just happened. Right. Anyway, right. go ahead. No, I mean, rightfully so, but mainly, you know, obviously the Chris Paul trade is, is how he wins that award. But I, I'm sitting here kind of unpacking some of the moves that happened last off season and it's like, man, Travis Lank, you know, we did not think would be deserving of being in this discussion a couple months ago, but it's wild to see Boyan, uh, or Bogdan, I'm getting my Bogdanoviches messed up, uh, out there doing his thing now in the conference finals to see Gallinari doing his thing. You know, the move, Lou Williams didn't obviously, I don't even know, did he play much the last couple of games? Um, but that, that Rajon Rondo trade, you know, it, it's got me thinking about the Clippers and how just these moves that get made with certain intentions in mind and, and some work and some don't. Like you look at the Clippers side, Luke Kennard is in and out of the lineup having good nights. Uh, you know, they gave him a ton of money last year. Rondo has been in street clothes, you know, doing a little bit now, but played um, a little in game one. Lou Williams, by the way, was, uh, I think the reason they, they came back in game five. He had like that stretch that, you know, remember they were down 25 or whatever. He really kind of dragged them back to strike. Right. And so the yeah, Hawks are built like they're almost built like a baseball team. Like you have a good pen. You know what I mean? Like they just, they have good middle relievers. They have, and if, and if a guy's not got his stuff, he, you can throw Lou Williams out there. You can throw Gallon Art. Yeah. Sam Amick sounds like a guy that wants to go to this Diamondbacks Brewers <laughs> game tonight. That's what he sounds like. I'll see. You I appreciate that we're that we're just throwing in baseball references to every episode now. They're the Tampa Bay Rays of the playoffs, is what they are. Speaking of which, I'm just gonna my San Francisco Giants having a wonderful year. Uh, we did not see that coming. So yes. How about your Sacramento Kings? I thought you were gonna tell us that the uh, the streets of Elk Grove are 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 up in arms that that Bogdanovich is doing such a. Uh, yeah, that's a little tough. In the that's, that's tough for the Kings. Uh, you know, maybe they'll get their wish. The other day, someone said, you know, if I can't have, uh, you know, happy Kings things to think about, maybe the the Mavs can hire Vlade Divac and then he can trade Luca to Sacramento and, and turn their whole world around. That's 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 definitely going to happen. I, I think no that's doubt. a likely offseason. No doubt. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals, and show you hidden allies so that you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash show 23 That's linkedin.com slash show 23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash MBA show 23 and get started. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. But yeah, like the Hawks, I just love, they just, they have scores and waves, uh, different kinds of scores and, and guys that do kind of come and go on a night in, night out basis. But Nate McMillan, again, like you said, Fred has done a wonderful job. I do anticipate him, you know, getting some kind of long-term deal when this thing is all said and done. Um, but you know, um, to go back to your original questions later, I mean, this is that time of year where in the media we're figuring out like, all right, what cities are we going to be in for the finals? And what do we think of that? Is it enjoyable? But it's normally just been all those years of Cleveland and Golden State. Um, you know, the prospect of doing something like, you know, Atlanta and Phoenix is, is not exactly what we had in mind a few months ago. I think that 
the ratings in the next couple rounds may not be absolutely terrific. But in Sam, we were talking about this last night. I do think this is kind of the reset that the league needed a little bit. You know, Devin Booker can't become a megastar until Devin Booker has a finals run. And then, you know, maybe three years from now, Phoenix is getting unbelievable ratings because they've become the established team with the established superstar. Um, you know, like LeBron's days are numbered as we're starting to see in, in the Warriors days. Clearly, we're number Steph Curry. I mean, like Steph Curry had an unbelievable season, but these are kind of the pillars of the league that get the best ratings, but like they will not last forever. And I do think this season, these four teams, it, as odd as it may seem to, to look at these two as the conference finals matchups, um, we're seeing the potential birth of the next type pillars of the league. And um, that's important. The league needs more variety. Um, I think we've said it for a while. The variety is here. And I think it's really good. I do love it. I agree. They they got to just have a good, healthy outlook on the kind of look at these playoffs with the long view. And I told Slater last night, Fred, you know, you're building up memories in your in your fans' minds about these young players who they're learning about. Now they see Trey Young on this stage. Now they obviously saw Luca earlier, you know, but now, uh, you know, guys, Devin Booker doing his thing and it's all the way down the line. So Probably not their preferred timing from a league standpoint when you're coming off a pandemic when all they really needed and wanted was to have the usual suspects, you know, on this stage at this point. But I do think that, you know, as LeBron nears the end, as, you know, you're trying to integrate this new wave of stars, this is going to be ultimately pretty good for the league. How much later? I think it's great. Devin Booker is going to be a huge name for a really, really long time. And the fact that he's 24 and is carrying a team to Western Conference Finals wins on nationally televised games on Sundays on ABC is a huge right. deal. Like that, that is great for the league. No one's buying the, you know, you don't have casual fans outside of Phoenix buying the Devin Booker jerseys until he's doing right. that. Uh, and that's 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 huge for the league. And, well, the big uh, question is when Devin Booker will convince Fred Katz he is the best player on the Phoenix Suns. <laughs> Fred, the fans He's, were chanting I, MVP. I just, I mean, I don't know what other verdict you need because there's there's no other evidence I need. If the fans were chanting MVP, that <laughs> would also would mean we'd have to that. give the MVP to Robin Lopez because <laughs> the Wizards fans did that for him this year. But we'll ignore that. <laughs> Are we admitting uh, it, Fred, or, is, or are you are you sticking? Are you sticking on your block? Uh, no, I think Devin Booker's been better in the playoffs. He's been un unfreaking believable in the playoffs. He's just been amazing. All right, I got amazing. two. There it is, Sam. Two other there roads to take this down before we let Slater go back to the Warriors world, where they're talking about draft picks. You got a press conference coming up. You got to get to. Um, lottery, lottery. <laughs> we should. I mean, lot. Hey, by the way, maybe we should have a lottery segment. This is huge tomorrow. It I is mean, okay. You know, like Fine. That, we got three yeah. segments. So for the listeners still with us, the three roads we're going to go down briefly and and uh, eloquently. Um, I'm going to take a Lakers pivot real quick, and it's just a thought. And if you guys want to build off it, feel free. I think it's fascinating that um, say what you will about the Lakers. Listen, they won the title last year. You cannot take that away. Even a franchise that's won a bunch of them uh, to make the most at least once of the LeBron James era. That's massive because you can't get a player like that and not cash in at least once. So on the coaching front, it is fascinating to consider the fact that they were clearly looking at the right kinds of candidates when they ultimately hired Frank Vogel. You have a conference finals right now with Monty Williams and Ty Lue, two guys who were offered the Lakers job, but who wanted longer term deals than were being uh, offered to them. That both guys wanted five years. The Lakers had a three-year outlook and window uh, and ultimately hire Frank Vogel, who has done a great job. Now you can talk about stuff this past playoffs. That's fine. But again, got him a championship. Uh, Jason Kidd, you know, on Frank Vogel's bench, now certainly being considered again all over the league. That part, uh, it, that's the end of my point. I just think it's interesting that all these former Lakers coaching candidates have proven, you know, we already knew that that Monty could coach to a degree, but this is, these are his best days. And Ty Lue all of a sudden has got, you know, history-making stuff on his resume in Cleveland that, and now with the Clippers. Um, that part just kind of fascinated me. You know, we mentioned the variety of teams. I, I, I like um, 
you know, these different coaching stories. And I think it should be mentioned three of the four coaches in the conference finals are black. Yeah. I think that's very good at a time when there's a lot of openings around the league that I think uh, it would be healthy for the league if, if uh, you know, a significant chunk of those openings went to to black coaches um, because there's a ton of great candidates. And um, we've talked, you know, over the years, particularly remember last offseason, um, we talked plenty about the fact that, that you know, it, it wasn't going out to – to, to those coaches, they seem to, uh, or even when the Minnesota thing happened, uh, and they just kind of like, you know, shifted that behind the scenes over Slater, Devin um, Booker. I don't know. I think you were in the room for this. I thought yeah, Devin I did as good a job as I've ever seen a player do in helping people understand why that component matters. Now you can talk on a couple levels here. Of course it matters for the sake of equality and the sake of everybody getting a fair crack at everything. But more germane to the NBA's environment, Devin's point was, you know, that and he was almost talking about the former player component. So, you know, it wasn't it was a it was a focus on black coaching candidates, but also the fact that Devin said, listen, we got James Jones and we got Monty Williams. And when these guys convey a message to us, and I think the front office part is equally important because, you know, there's not that skepticism from the player side that the person telling them that this is the best way to play or that's the best way to play. They trust that they know what they're talking about. It's not somebody who was elevated, you know, in large part because of, and I'm not, Fred, I can, you know, I'm already going to throw it to you, but it's, I was going to say from an Ivy League background, I know that's way too simplistic to talk about certain front office folks and, and how, you know, they rose within the league. But I thought Devin really hit the nail on the head because it wasn't a matter of, just saying, you know, let's put this guy out there, that guy out there, because we want the numbers to look better. It was, no, this is why it, it works better functionally, relationship-wise, for the best basketball players on the world to have people with that kind of experience. And too often in the past, that was not considered nearly enough in the hiring process. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think another interesting part of of the the coaches who are, who are there in the finals now is you got former players there, right? Like Nate McMillan is a well-respected former player. You know, Ty Lu is a well-respected former player. And I think when you have a former player who has the mind of Ty Lu and the mind of Nate McMillan and is able to explain and channel and get guys to buy in, right? Like those guys are so good at buy-in. It's, I mean, that that is as good of a type of coach as you're going to get because they can relate to their players on all levels, right? Uh, and so I think that that's that's what those guys do at such an elite level where they they're able to relate on the former player standpoint, and they're obviously able to to generate these incredible, you know, these incredible X's and O's to put out for players and get players to buy into them. So, so to that point, let um, me jump. In. I want I want you to give me your opinion on this. Like Vogel to me is fascinating because not taking an ounce of credit away from what he's accomplished. I know that sounds like, okay, but I'm about to do just that. But Jason Kidd being on his staff, those dynamics are tricky where, and we've seen that formula before, where you have somebody in Frank, you know, who this is similar to, you know, even an Eric Spolster, guys like that, where they, you know, they came up at one part in the video room and they impressed the people of influence within the organization for you know their ability to to obviously just have a, a fantastic grasp of the game but when time came for them to be the top voice for the entire locker room you know and this is the Vogel formula is that the the organization clearly felt like we needed to support them with former players and the kinds of guys that a LeBron and an Anthony Davis can go to if they're not necessarily completely feeling the top guy um i think the, you know the argument for the Ty Lue's and the Nate McMillan's was, you know, in the best of circumstances, you don't need that kind of a, a, a setup, if that makes sense. I mean, even with Spolstra at the beginning, you had Pat Riley back. Yeah. It's you a know? different kind of support. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You need, you know, it's, that's obviously a different situation in terms of the roles we're talking yep. about, but that's a very important and authoritative voice who's behind you saying, listen to that guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's right. good. Uh, and so, so yeah, I mean, I think, 
I think there are a lot of different structures. I think that's just kind of true in general for first time coaches too. I mean, like Slater, I remember Steve Kerr gets the job and he says, you know what? I haven't had a coaching job before. I'm bringing in a ton of assistant coaches with tons of coaching experience, right? And similar thing happens with Steve Nash where he hasn't had a coaching job and he says, you know what? I got to bring in Mike D'Antoni and I got to bring in other guys who have all this coaching experience and the Nets put together this like all-star assistant coaching staff with Ime Odoka and all these other top-notch respected assistants, right? And they, it was a similar thing Amari in, in Golden State even. with Kerr. Um, yeah. Lottery, quickly, because I have to actually get to a little pre- like little mini press conference for it. Um, I, it. This is somewhat of an Andrew segment as well. There's two big swing picks in the lottery, uh, which is Tuesday night. Uh, the Houston pick, if it's top four, and Houston had the worst record in the league, so it's about a 50% chance both ways that uh, that that pick will stay in the top four and Houston will retain it. But if it goes to five, and as what we all know is has become kind of a five-player draft up top, um, it goes to Oklahoma City. So that, that 50-50 coin flip is a huge uh, for both those franchises. And then the other one is is the one I'm covering with uh, the, the Wolves pick. And the Wolves have this kind of rising young core, and the Wolves have about a 27% chance of jumping in the top three and if they jump in the top three we're talking about you know they're adding a Kate Cunningham a Jalen Suggs to that core that is now Anthony Edwards Carl Anthony Towns and you know we can debate where D'Angelo Russell fits in but that's huge for and they have about like I said a 27% chance but if it's outside the top three if it's four or even because the Wolves had a nice run at the late in the season it can be up to six seven eight nine um, then it goes to the Warriors and then suddenly the Warriors have a, a, a prime asset this summer either to draft a Davion Mitchell or something like that with or uh, use that pick plus the 14th pick which they're very likely to get I don't think they're going to jump up with that I think there's a two percent chance Um, that's a potential you know start of a package that they could really try to to trade this summer we'll see Um, that they are messaging out the Warriors are messaging out that they're committed to sticking with Wiseman Jordan Poole those two lottery picks kind of having a young core under um the Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson core, but it's just, it's, it's, there's a couple swing situations tomorrow night in the lottery. And I just kind of wanted to say people to look out for that. And on top of all of that, if the Minnesota Wizards. does get into the top four, then all of a sudden, not only is Minnesota get that top four pick, but now Golden State has Minnesota's unprotected 2022 first yes. round pick. And it's not like we're looking at the Wolves and we're like, all right, well, they'll be like the 10th worst team next year. Like that could be the number one pick yeah. next year. The, That's plausible. There is a thread the needle scenario for the Warriors. It's actually top three protected and there's a 9.6% chance it lands at four. If it lands at four, the Warriors get the fourth pick, which would mean the Warriors would be sitting there maybe getting a Jalen Suggs, maybe getting uh Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga. So um, we're going to know a lot more about how this offseason might look and and how trade packages might look um, uh, Tuesday night, really. Well, uh, let's let's later go to Lottery Land uh, as a final point, as you guys could hear me go quiet there. Been juggling in real time while podcasting, but since it'll be a story now, we might as well mention it. Sham Sharania and I reporting that Becky Hammond is, uh, is, is part of this kind of shrinking group in Portland uh, being seriously considered for the Blazers job. Um, we were hearing, you know, to this point, you know, Chauncey Billups, Brent Berry, Mike D'Antoni getting very serious consideration as well. Uh, but, you know, we, we talked earlier about black coaches and that conversation and, and having a woman head coach is something that has been years in the making and more and more names being part of the conversation. But, you know, it, it's the next level to have somebody not just have the quote unquote token first interview. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on the Portland front. Uh, and unless you guys feel like weighing in there, I will let Slater go uh, talk to, to Mr. Rick Welts. Thank you, boys. 